If, uh, if you're just joining us uh, here at Tabernacle, in, in person or online, we're, we've been doing a series in Philippians, not so much going expositionally through the book. Um, we, we did that recently, as a matter of fact. Uh, Kyle did, did a series in Philippians a couple of years ago. But um, instead, we're, we're looking at the roughly 16 different places in Paul's letter where he uses the word joy or, or some derivative of the word joy, uh, because frankly, we could use more joy, right? Um, it's the second fruit of the Spirit that Paul lists as evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit in us, love, and then joy. Um, and, uh, and we're moving into the season we call Advent here in just a few weeks where we talk about you know, and we sing about uh, joy to the world. So we're calling this joy for the world. Uh, the gospel gives us joy. But not simply joy as an end in itself. Uh, the joy is something that we get uh, as a result of a relationship with Jesus. And that's really what, what Paul is emphasizing here as we turn to Philippians chapter 3. Um, we're we're going to see where Paul's saying, look, there's don't take your joy in Christ for granted. There are actually plenty of influences uh, that would want to deprive us of that joy that we can have uh, through Jesus. So uh, why don't we stand in honor of God's word? I'm going to read verses 1 through 11 in chapter 3. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. But look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the joy that we can have through Jesus, a joy that is not the result of our own effort and independence, but is the result of a relationship with Jesus, where you count us as righteous, where we count our works as rubbish, and where we get to experience joy in relationship with you. In your name we pray. Amen. 
Please be seated. So, um, so Paul's given us a, a warning here after some uh, familiar words that, uh, that he's going to repeat in Philippians, where he says in verse 1, rejoice in the Lord. And then in the next chapter, uh, he says it a couple more times, you know, just to keep hammering that drum. But, but that joy is something that needs to be guarded. Um, he says in verse 2, to look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Uh, Paul's using some strong language here. He seems upset, actually, and we might kind of wonder what's happened to Paul's joy. Uh, I mean, you and I would be upset, too, if uh, the people that we cared about were being targeted by imposters who are moving in and trying to lure people away from having that intimate dependence upon Jesus that we, we call faith. Um, so Paul loves these Philippians. He, he said earlier that God can testify how I long for you all with the affection of Jesus, right? And so he cares for these people. He's protective of them, and he's, he's, he's warning them. He's, he's warning them against the dogs, the evildoers, those who mutilate the flesh. Uh, who is he talking about? What is he talking about? Mutilating the flesh. Um, he's talking about circumcision. And he's like deliberately saying they are not the real circumcision. That's not a, a, the, the kind of circumcision that honors God. That's simply mutilating the flesh. Uh, you can go to Acts 15 and we get a picture of what's at stake here. Um, it's the first synod or, or presbytery or general assembly that you see in Scripture in Acts 15, where uh, a situation is erupted and there's a, this need to kind of bring all the churches together, have a court, and decide how are we moving forward. Uh, we're told in, in chapter 15 that some men came down from Judea, and they were falsely teaching the brothers that unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So these are coming from Judea. They're Jewish teachers. And they're coming to predominantly non-Jewish or Gentile new converts, believers in Jesus, and saying, you know what, you have to become Jewish first before you can become truly Christian." You've got to take on the sign of circumcision and become like us as Jewish people in order to you know, follow our Jewish Messiah. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, there was like a, a serious conflict, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. That's where the assembly ensued. Um, Paul describes those who insisted on circumcision as mutilators of the flesh. It's pretty graphic, right? Well, consider what's at stake. They're not just mutilating the flesh, they're, they're mutilating the gospel. They're, they're taking what, what God has provided and, and they're cutting it to pieces and destroying it. They're, they're, they're making it about what we do to earn our salvation as opposed to what God has done to make salvation a free gift to anyone 
who simply receives it by faith, right? Regardless of our works, regardless of our effort, regardless of our flesh. You know, um, we were at Presbytery yesterday um, for the Blue Ridge Presbytery, and one of the pastors, you know, we, we started every meeting with a worship service, and one of the pastors was, was you know, charging us as other elders in, in our presbytery from Colossians 1.28, where Paul's sharing something similar to the Colossians. Him, we, we proclaim Jesus, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Um, we, we need healthy, humble warnings in order to become mature in Christ. We need to be warned against those who would add on to what Jesus has completely accomplished to, to, to make us saved, to, to bring us into his kingdom. We, we, he doesn't need our help. He, he finished it. It was done on the cross. So Paul's warning the Philippians, in this case, against those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. And then he says something really interesting in verse 3. He says, we are the circumcision. We, Philippians, are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, circumcised or not, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And then he goes on to kind of describe his pedigree. But I want you to remember, some of you, you know, yeah, you're like, oh yeah, yeah, I remember, um, you know, the situation in Philippi. But if you're new to the Bible or, or new to the church, Paul's writing this letter to a group of Christians in a Roman colony called Philippi. That's why it's called Philippians. And Philippi was founded uh, and basically became like a retirement community. It became Florida uh, for a bunch of Roman soldiers. And that's where they ended up settling. And if you, and if you turn from you know, Acts 15, which has that sort of synod or, or assembly where they're talking about, hey, do, should, do we need to be circumcised in order to be saved? No, no, you don't. The very next chapter, Acts 16, talks about Paul's missionary trip to Philippi. And this is where he meets the people in Philippi for the first time. This is where the church gets planted. And who does he meet? What kinds of people are he, is, he, is he writing to? First person he meets, uh, there's really, there's no synagogue, there's no Jewish community there except for just a few people who gathered down by the river. One of these people is this woman named Lydia, but she's not from Judea, she's from Asia Minor. She's a convert to Judaism. There's, there's no congregation really, it's just a smattering of people. And then who does Paul meet? Well, he meets people who are making money off of, you know, a demon-possessed teenager. There's demon-possessed teenagers running around all over Philippi. Um, there's this, you know, this poor slave girl. Uh, people are making money off of her. Uh, Paul and uh, Barnabas are thrown in jail, and they, 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 they minister to all the people in the jail, and the Philippian jailer, and he's presumably a retired Roman soldier. And these are the kinds of people who are in Philippi. They're not Jewish. And so it is astounding that Paul would have the gall to say to this very non-Jewish congregation in Philippi, we are the circumcision. He doesn't say, we are also the circumcision. He doesn't say, 
we are a type of circumcision. He says explicitly, we are the circumcision. We are the ones who have been circumcised in our hearts, not in the flesh. The flesh counts for nothing. What matters is the inward transformation that Paul describes as who worship by the Spirit of God and who glory and boast, not in ourselves, what we've done, our pedigree and our accomplishments, but who boast in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So, you know, confidence in the flesh is this sort of technical, spiritual term that Paul's using to describe a bunch of different scenarios, right? He's saying we don't put confidence in the flesh, meaning we don't put confidence in like circumcised flesh, ew. <laughs> we don't put confidence in the flesh, in the, in the things that we do with our, our fleshly bodies to, to obey the law or not obey the law. We don't put confidence in the flesh in terms of what nationality or ethnicity your flesh happens to be, whether it's Jewish flesh or non-Jewish flesh. He's just saying none of that matters. We don't put any confidence in the flesh. Instead, you know, our boast is in what Jesus has done. So this is the distinction that Paul's making between the flesh and the spirit. So the flesh is Paul's way of referring to a life that is independent of God a life that is focused on what I'm accomplishing and how I can boast and what I've done without thinking about what God has done. So if you, if you grew up in the church, though, it's, it's entirely likely that when you hear the word flesh, you have a, uh, a distinct connotation that, that creates a category in your mind where you think of the things that are done in the flesh is things that are done against God, against his will, against his commandments. And you, you would be right because that's how Paul describes the flesh in, in some circumstances. Like he describes it that way in Galatians 5. He says the works of the flesh are evident. Um, things like sexual immorality, uh, impurity, sensuality, uh, jealousy, strife, enmity, uh, fits of anger, rivalries, like we, we think, oh yeah, that's, that's living in the flesh. That's, that's a fleshly life. And, and so that might be your connotation and, and, and that would be biblical, but, but that would not be comprehensive of what the flesh is because the flesh is sneaky. The flesh relies on itself. It does what it wants, you know, and if you want to be independent of God, then a life lived in the flesh can be lived in rebellion against God with that kind of list going on. But a life that's independent of God can also look very, very much like God. It can look very obedient. It can look very religious. It can look very spiritual. It can look a lot like Paul's life, right? The flesh not only expresses independence from God in in terms of rebellion, but also in terms of obedience. This is the tricky part. It's easier to recognize the flesh controlling us when we're disobeying God. It's harder to see the flesh at work when we're, we seem to be obeying. Paul used to find his joy in being Jewish and in being obedient. And he felt satisfied, he, he even smug, you know, uh, when it came to his, his nationality, his, his religious upbringing, his spiritual activity, and all of this made up Paul's religious resume. 
Uh, look at the end of verse 4. He says, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And here's where you get that self-reliant, independent expression of the flesh that looks a lot like what would make God happy, but it doesn't. He says he was circumcised on the eighth day, you know, conformed to God's covenant of the people of Israel. That's his birthright. He's not a proselyte. You know, he, 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 came, he was born into this. He's of the tribe of Benjamin, a very prominent um, Jewish tribe, by the way. That's where King Saul came from, and that's who Saul, Paul, was originally named after, we presume. He says he's a Hebrew of Hebrews. Like, there's just, in every way, he's a thoroughbred. And then he starts to pivot, not from just his identity and nationality, but his activity. And he says, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Like, I'm hardcore is what he's saying. You, you can't top my resume. Um, and and he's, he's saying this kind of to prove a point, not to boast in himself, but just to say, you, you can't do enough. Like, I've done it. I've reached the top. I've, I've checked all the boxes. And, and at the end of the day, how does Paul regard his resume? How does he count his works done in the flesh? They're, they're, they're trash, Right? He's been trying to suck joy from these things, but it, he's been as, as successful as somebody trying to drink a milkshake through a straw. It doesn't work. And so what would Paul say to us? How would he warn us? Look, beware, uh, especially again, like kind of maybe addressing more of those of us who have been in the church for a long while, and some of you grew up in the church. You've been raised in this. This is all you know. And Paul would warn us against imagining that if you were baptized on the eighth day, <laughs> and he would warn you if, if you are feeling pretty good about being an American, this, you know, God's country, right? He would warn you against being, uh, finding pride and, and confidence in whatever political tribe you belong to, you know, Republican or Democrat or whatever, even independent. He would warn you against feeling like you are a Christian of Christians, like a thoroughbred, right? He would warn you as to imagining that, that it mattered, it counted as righteousness, that, that as to doctrine, maybe you're a Presbyterian. He would say, look, be careful whether as to zeal, you consider yourself a giver to the church, you know, uh, a, a maker of chili, you know, last weekend. Uh, he would warn you if you were a teacher of middle schoolers, right? That's, that's, that's high, high stakes, you know, Christianity there. He would, he would say, don't find your confidence if you were a changer of diapers in the nursery. I mean, the list just goes on and on. And as to righteousness under the law, don't find your confidence in being a really nice person. That's not what matters. What does Paul say about his nationality, his religious upbringing, his spiritual activity, what would he say about ours? He tells us in verse 7, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, everything I count as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things. And I just, I, I pitch them in the dumpster. That's where they belong. 
in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from what I have done in the flesh or what my flesh represents, but a righteousness that comes through faith in Christ. It comes from God. It depends on faith. So, you know, what Paul does is he essentially takes everything he used to count on, that he used to try to suck joy from, and he just tosses it in the dumpster. And then, like, you know, on the front of your bulletin, you get all those, those dumpsters. Then he would pour gas, gasoline in those dumpsters and light a match to it. That was his life. All of that relying on what he had done and, and counting on the flesh and what it was worth and so on. It's a dumpster fire. And it absolutely was worthless in the eyes of the Lord. What would, what would cause Paul to put all of that pedigree and all of that accomplishment, all of that, that spiritual resume and put it in the, in the dumpster? What would cause him to do that? The surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus, my Lord. The joy that would be his through Jesus rather than through anything self-reliant. Do we know that joy? Have you counted as you know, rubbish, as dumpster fodder, all of the accomplishments and all of the things that we tend to boast in, that society boasts in, compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus? Because if you don't, you're not going to know joy. You're not going to know Jesus. Um, Paul asks the Galatians, another letter we've already referenced, he, there's a similar situation there where people, imposters are coming in and they're trying to distract them from relying on Christ alone. And he says to them, what's happened to your joy? What's, what, what has become of your blessedness? You know, using the same word that Jesus used in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They're going to be happy. Because God's going to fill him. Alec Matir is a commentator who I've benefited from um, in, in this whole series. And, and he says that when Paul tells us to rejoice in the Lord and not in the flesh, what he's doing is he's saying, let the Lord be the one who makes you happy. Let Jesus be the source of your joy. So based on you know, our self-reliant, um, sinful uh, uh, posture, independent streak, you know, that goes all the way back to our, our first father and mother in the garden. Our reliance on and boasting in the flesh ought to entitle God to count us as rubbish as refuse, like to, to throw us out with the trash. I mean, Jesus, when he would talk about hell, when you see Jesus use the word hell in the New Testament and the Gospels, by the way, he talks about hell more than he talks about heaven. And the word that, the, the English word hell that gets translated in our, in our Bibles is an Aramaic word that was preserved even in the Greek. It, it comes from a Jewish word, Gehenna. And that was the name of the valley that was on the western side of Jerusalem where the people of, of Jerusalem would take all the trash and, and dump it in this valley and burn it. 
It's also, by the way, where they did, they performed child sacrifices to Molech in the height of their idolatry. But that became a cursed place, right? A place for trash, and it would burn. And, and Jesus would say uh, things like, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to Gehenna, to the unquenchable fire. Our sin means that God has every right to toss us out with the trash into Gehenna. But he doesn't. God doesn't count us as trash. Instead, he counts us as righteous. When we turn from our rubbish, our our rubbish self-righteousness, and rely on Jesus and make him our treasure. That's what happens. When when we count all of our self-reliance as rubbish and look to Jesus, he counts his righteousness as our own. That's the exchange that happens. That's the gospel that Paul's defending here. And he sums it up in Romans 4. Listen to how Paul describes God's relationship with Abraham. What shall we say that was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh, according to our Judaism? If Abraham was justified by works, then he has something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? Abraham, instead of boasting about his works, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Jesus was delivered for our trespasses on the cross. He became cursed. He was the one, as it were, cast out of the city into Gehenna, dying as a cursed sacrifice for us to take away that curse and to take away that guilt so that God might count Christ's righteousness to us. Paul counted his self-righteousness as rubbish in order to get the righteousness that God counts toward us because of Jesus. That's the exchange. This is what Paul's rejoicing about. This is what happens when when we don't just know about Jesus, but when we know him, when we really are in a relationship with him. The Bible describes knowing God and knowing Jesus, not simply as just data that, that we acquire and and things we pick up through going to church habitually, but, but instead it's, it's having a relationship with the living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's knowing Jesus and being friends with him. Paul, uh, I'm sorry, James describes it this way. The scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. Would God call you his friend based on your relationship with Jesus? Do you, do you, are you in relationship with him like that? Do you just know about him or do you know him? Because Paul says in verse 10, I want to know him, right? Look at that. And the power of his resurrection. And, and I want to share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Look, if knowing Jesus is our joy, then and there's some really fantastic implications of that. 
If that's the ultimate source of your joy, that joy will never run out. Why? Because of who Jesus is. If our, if our joy is in our circumstances, our circumstances change and our joy will change too. If, if our joy is in something on this earth, this earth is going to you know, perish and it's not eternal and, that, and our, so our joy is going to you know, perish too. But if our joy is in what is imperishable, if our joy is in what is immortal, if our joy is in Jesus, it's never going to go away. Even, even in the midst of suffering. In fact, a relationship with Jesus, a friendship with Jesus is so powerful it will even transform suffering so that they even become an on-ramp to joy, not an off-ramp. What do you mean by that? You know this. You understand this. We, this, isn't, this isn't what as complicated as it maybe sounds because suffering um, does something kind of interesting. When you're in the middle of, of pain, it's one thing to just lament the pain and, oh, this hurts and I don't like this and and so on. Uh, it's another thing to go, oh, this is what Jesus was experiencing for me. That's the extent of his love for me. It gives us, like I said, another on-ramp into understanding the height, the depth, the width, and the length of, of his love for us, the sacrifice that he made for us. So have you ever been betrayed? That hurts. It hurts terribly. And it leaves a scar, and it leaves a wound, and we need the gospel to heal that wound. But you don't just get stuck in the fact that, oh, I've been betrayed, woe is me. What moves us on, what even gives us an on-ramp to joy is Jesus was betrayed for me. I understand a little bit better now what he experienced for me. Right? Have you ever been abused? Abuse is awful. We've been talking about it for you know, several weeks in our adult discipleship class. Abuse is terrible. It can be life-shattering. Abuse can also be transformed into an on-ramp to experience intimacy with Jesus who is abused for us. Let himself be mistreated for us. Let himself be wounded, even crucified for us. That's the height, depth, and length, and width of his love for us. And it just goes on. Have you ever been slandered? Have you ever been persecuted? Have you ever been disrespected? Have you ever been disgraced? Like, Jesus knows that. He completely understands in spades what that is like. So don't let the enemy isolate and alienate you in that kind of pain, thinking, oh, woe is me. The pain's real, and it's to be lamented. But the pain is also there to connect us to Jesus, to grow our friendship with him. He understands. He has solidarity with you. It actually can be an on-ramp to a, a deeper joy in your friendship with Jesus. Hebrews 2 says it was fitting that he, for him, by him, all things exist. And bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Don't let suffering make you bitter toward God or, or, or to the person who's caused the suffering. Let it be an on-ramp to a greater intimacy with, with Jesus because if our joy comes from Jesus, it, it's eternal. It, it doesn't have to go away. And then the last thing is that if our joy is tied to Jesus, then it's also tied to his resurrection. 
Is there anything more powerful than the resurrection? Like prior to the resurrection, there was nothing more powerful than death until the resurrection. And, and, and now, you know, death, where's your stinger? It's gone. Because nothing is more powerful than the resurrection. And so if, if our joy is tied to Jesus, then it's tied to his resurrection. And therefore, nothing can take away that joy. Nothing is more powerful than joy that's tied to the resurrection. Nothing is going to take that joy away because of what Jesus promised the very night that he was betrayed when he said, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. If that joy is in Christ. Let me pray. Lord, we give you thanks for warnings from Scripture. Uh, there really are forces and people at work who would, would have us look away from Jesus for our righteousness, that would want to reinforce uh, what is already our default mode uh, to rely on ourselves and look to ourselves to try to find joy in what we do, what we accomplish, or who we are. Lord, um, help us to just cast all of that and throw it into the trash bin. Um, Lord, instead, let us know the, the surpassing greatness, the overwhelming worth of knowing Christ and, and enjoying your friendship. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for dying for us. Thank you for being raised to new life so that we might experience new life with you. And we pray that uh, as, we, as we lean more and more into Jesus, that we would know more and more of his joy, even in the midst of suffering. 